Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really great to have you here. On this week's episode, I welcome back my friend Bill Boyle for a remembrance of the great Irish poet and singer Shane McGowan. We also talk about the elements of a great dive bar, a Wong Kar Wai classic, and a whole lot more. This one's a treat. Let's get into it. Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really wonderful to have you here. How y'all doing? I uh, I created a bit of a shitstorm this week. That's how I'm doing. I'm actually doing great. But um, I uh, published a piece this week. You may have read it if you've been paying attention. It is uh, the piece I wrote on Spotify and how much money that you're paying every month actually goes back to Spotify. And then uh, I've also written and reported quite a bit about what Spotify is doing with that money that they're keeping from you. And what I got was a little bit of Spotify hatred, which is always welcome. Uh, I got a lot of people saying, I listen to way more music than that. So uh, I'm actually... I'm actually using up most of that and it's going to artists and I'm, I'm, I'm spinning a lot of songs. Uh, and then the third part was, um, this is totally fair. I don't understand what your problem is. Why are you making people feel bad because of the end of the year? And, um, it's a really complicated issue because my goal is not to make people feel bad or to shame folks for sharing the music that they loved during the year. But my concern is that we all want to have the sum total of recorded music in our pocket for a few dollars a month. And I think that really is the conversation that we need to have. And the other thing that I heard was I heard a lot of people talking about, I buy a lot of physical media. I go to a lot of concerts. I buy a lot of shirts. That is wonderful. Keep doing those things. Those things are an immensely helpful way to support the artists you love. However, they are not a replacement for not being paid for the music that you create. When you sell a t-shirt, you're selling a piece of clothing. So when you buy that, you're buying a piece of clothing. You're not buying a piece of music. When you go to a show, you're paying for a live performance, not music. When (laughs) When you buy vinyl, you're buying for a pressed piece of vinyl inside a package. It has music in it, but what you're paying for is you're paying for the physical artifact. And again, those are really great things to support artists, but they are not a replacement for being paid for the music that you make. And I also think it's unfair of consumers to have to turn around and say, I spent X number of dollars on vinyl this year because we shouldn't have to spend $30 for every record that we love. I I love vinyl, but it's prohibitively expensive, and I, for the most part, have stopped purchasing vinyl, just simply because I have so much of it and because it's so prohibitively expensive. And so 
when we reach this point where people are feeling guilty about not spending more money on physical artifacts. The other thing is, I don't mean to, to sort of go off on a rant here, but there's a wonderful environmental benefit to digital streaming. There's a huge environmental benefit to taking all of that physical product that needs to be made, manufactured, and then shipped all over the world and then stored places. Not having to do that has immense environmental consequences, even just within the music industry. So let's not let's not call that nothing. But we have to find a way to pay more than a third of a cent every time an artist gets a song played. And so I wrote this piece. This is a, this is an issue on which I have been passionate for years. I have been at times a crazy lone man in the wilderness yelling about this while the rest of my friends are all like, this is a really good deal. You shouldn't pass this shit up. I understand how good of a deal it is for a consumer. But I also understand that you as a consumer have a responsibility to know where your money is going. If you ordered a pizza that was $20 and you found out that $5 of that $20 went back to the pizzeria and $15 of it went into the pocket of the person who brought you the pizza, you'd begin to wonder pretty quickly how that pizzeria was going to stay open. How is it any different if it's music? If you feel uncomfortable because Walmart doesn't pay their employees and treat them well, but you still shop at Walmart, you're actually helping that problem exist. You're not fixing it. If you refuse to buy Nike shoes because they use child labor, but you still sign up for Spotify, I'm not saying they're the same thing, but they are different forms of the same sort of exploitation. And so there is some responsibility here on the part of artists, on the part of Spotify, and on the part of listeners. And that's the conversation that I want to have. I don't want people to feel shame. I don't want people to feel like they shouldn't have access to music. I don't want people to think that digital streaming is a terrible idea. But the way that we're doing it right now is damaging. And we can argue about whether or not the quality of music is going down, but the quality of life for musicians is being reduced drastically. And it wasn't that great to begin with. And this is a conversation that I want to continue to have both in the blog and on the podcast. I'm working on a series of interviews on this subject. This is a really complicated and deep issue, but it, it means a lot to me. So I hope you'll continue to pay attention. Um, let's get into something a little more fun. The Steven Spielberg Bracket Challenge has been such a goddamn treat. Uh, I have loved this thing so much. It started with me just deciding I was going to post a poll. And it was going to be, hey, what's your favorite Spielberg movie? And the way that Substack works, I can't put more than five things in a poll. I'm sorry, my throat's really dry today. Mm. Sorry. So I can't post more than five things in a poll. So I decide, well, let's just break it up and we'll do it like a tournament challenge and we can do a series of one-on-one matchups. And we've been doing this for months. I don't know how long this has been going on, but two, three months maybe? And uh, we have wound our way down to the semis, and they are uh, wrapping up right now. And on this coming Saturday, which will be December 9th, I will be publishing the finals of the Steven Spielberg Bracket Challenge. 
And uh, the way that it looks right now, it looks like our one and two seeds are going to face off against each other. But again, there are still a few hours of voting as I record this uh, in the early hours of Monday morning. And uh, it looks like we might have a Jaws and Raiders showdown. And uh, as one listener said, that is going to be epic. Um, I think it's going to be epic. So please, if you haven't already voted and you're listening to this on Monday, December 4th, when it publishes, uh, get your little tickets over there to the Substack at whatamimaking.substack.com. Uh, get to your polling station and make sure your vote is in and then make sure you are paying attention because on Saturday morning, December 9th, I will be posting all of the details and a week-long round of voting. That's right, you'll have seven full days to not only vote, but to drag your friends and colleagues and enemies that haven't yet voted uh, into the four, and you can get them to uh, sway the outcome one way or another as we finally wrap our way down to the greatest Steven Spielberg film of all time. Uh, my weekly and friendly reminder that I have a radio show over at Rockin' the Suburbs Radio. It's uh, suburbsradio.com. My show posts every Friday at noon Eastern, and I, uh, I also, uh, during the following week after the show, I post a recap, uh, a track list, and a link for you to listen to an archived version. So if you're paying attention to the Substack or you're a listen- listener of Rockin' the Suburbs Radio, and you should be, again, that uh, address is suburbsradio.com. Uh, you can uh, you can listen to my show live every Friday at noon Eastern, or you can go and uh, pay attention to the blog over at whatamimaking.substack.com. And uh, just a few days after each episode airs, I post a recap and a replay with a link. So make sure you're listening to those. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is because these are themed radio hours, I've been asking for song submissions every week. And then we see how many of... Your song submissions actually match up with the track list that that I put together. So it's it's a lot of fun, and if you hit me up early enough, uh, it might sway my uh, my choices. I've had a couple of those where I was like, "Oh, that's a really good one. I need to make sure that I include that." So make sure that you're getting involved and you're submitting your favorite songs on the theme for each week. Those blog posts go up weekly, so make sure you're paying attention to that. Uh, if you didn't already hear, I did have to postpone my February and March tour, but fear not, dear friends. I will be heading out on the road in June of 2024. The Shedio hits the road. I've got a bunch of really fun stuff coming this week about that project. I'm still looking for hosts. So if you're interested in hosting a show and you're in the eastern half of the U.S., hit me up. Send me an email at phonofor at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on the blog at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com, either way, and let me know that you'd be interested in hosting. You'll get to see a full route of the tour. Uh, that's already up on the uh, on the substack and on my website at phonofourrecords.com. Uh, I'd love to come out there and, and see you and have some fun. Uh, as always, this show and the work that I am doing here and at the blog are powered solely by your financial support. So please consider signing up for a paid subscription today for as little as $5 a month. Go over to whatamimaking.substack.com, sign up for a paid subscription. You can do a monthly, a yearly, or a founding member subscription. 
It is incredibly important. It's the way that I can sort of justify the amount of time that I spend on this blog and this podcast, uh, the work that I'm doing over at What Am I Making. We're building a really, really great community. There's a lot of really wonderful people over there. We've started to really connect with a bunch of other great writers and creators on Substack, and there's really exciting stuff happening. So please come over and join us on Substack if you haven't already. Get the Substack app. It's a great way to follow people, kind of in a social media feed sort of way, but it's very kind of like not pushy at all and not intense and no ads. It's it's really great. Um, and uh, if you enjoy what you read and what you hear at this space, it would mean the world to me if you would consider signing up for a paid subscription. So again, that address is whatamimaking.substack.com. And please <clears throat> make sure you're communicating with the show. Let us know what you think. Do you love something I publish? Do you disagree with it vehemently? Do you have thoughts on Spotify, suggestions, ideas, <clears throat> uh, guests that I should talk to? Send me an email over at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash whatamimaking. You can use the uh, phone or you can use the 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 mic on your tablet or your computer and uh, you can leave me a good old fashioned voicemail and uh, I can maybe even play it on the show. So, uh, and uh, it's, it's great. However you want to communicate with me, but the big thing is reach out, let me know what you're thinking. Let me know uh, what ideas you have, what thoughts you have on the show. Uh, It really means the world to me when I hear from folks. Uh, The last thing I would ask of you, and I ask this every week and it's really, really important. So I'm going to ask, extra special hard this week and see if we can get a couple of these specifically uh, on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, the dreaded Spotify. I would like to ask you to like, rate, and review the pod wherever you listen. You literally can just hit a little thumbs up thing usually or a heart, then you can rate it. I think most of them are one to five stars and then leave a little one or two sentence review, just something really simple and honest about why you listen to the show or why you like it. It is the number one way for us to reach new ears. Please. It's really important. Like rate and review wherever you're listening. Just take a minute and do it. If you've already done that and you're still feeling ambitious and you want to help out, share this with one person in your life who would enjoy it. Send them a text with a link to however you listen and say, hey, I really dig this pod. I think you might too. All right. Enough self-promotion. Let us move on to the real reason you are here, my guest. I first got to know Bill Boyle from his insight and analysis at Stand Up with Pete Dominic. And while Bill's day job is owning a series of parking garages around the D.C. metro area, his real genius is breaking down complex information into discernible chunks. I have learned as much from Bill about the war in Ukraine as I have from any single news outlet. Now, Bill is not a journalist and would never promote himself as such. But he has an insatiable curiosity about the world around him. He's incredibly well-read, well-sourced, and well-traveled. He has had the good fortune to see much of the world and to understand the context behind it. Through this deep love and fascination with history, his own Irish roots, and his fondness for great wordplay, it was impossible for a young Bill Boyle to not fall head over heels in love for the Pogues. Bill and I talk about our own personal histories with the band, some of McGowan's greatest lyrical moments, why the band still matters, and likely always will. 
we actually begin our conversation on what makes a great dive bar, which, of course, is a terrific segue into the Shane McGowan chat. After we pay tribute to the Prince of the Pogues, Bill and I dive into a discussion of the Wong Kar Wai classic, Chung King Express. It's a great and fluid conversation that somehow seems to all make sense, at least to the two of us. I hope you dig it. Pogue Mahone. Cheers. Maddie C. Hey, Bill. How are you, sir? I am well. How are you? Good. Good. You know. Good. Can you hear me all right? What's that? I can hear you perfectly. Yeah. Beauty. Beauty. Thanks so much for doing this on short notice. I appreciate it. No, that's fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I uh, I didn't have any Guinness in the house, but I did have some Jamesons. So I poured oh. myself a nice a nice heavy one before we got together. Yeah, so, I, I took care of that last night. So today. Understood. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Are you uh, are you recovering? Okay. I'm doing all right. Yeah, I was the, the least inebriated of an inebriated crowd. So, oh boy, I was, um, was getting people home at one in the morning last night. So, oh my, yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a full Saturday. Yeah, we were at a place called the Quarry House up in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is this really awesome um, bar. It was a dive bar in a basement underneath the Popeyes. That was owned. It is now owned by um, a woman who used to rent the top floor of the building the 930 Club was originally in. Okay. And who you would go to, I would go to shows there. I never knew her back in the 80s and 90s, but you'd end up on the roof because you'd go to a show and you'd someone say, I'm going upstairs to beer. It's my friend's place, whatever. And you'd end up on the roof of the building the 930 Club was in. She eventually became a restaurateur and now she owns this, the quarry house, and she's like curated it so perfectly so perfectly it's like this amazing dive bar and really like fun and chill and has zero douche vibes and that's fantastic okay so uh, i suspect that you and i will have a similar wavelength here what is the the bill boyle definition of a perfect dive bar what are some Uh, of the the itinerant parts that must exist for it to be a perfect dive bar so we're doing the moon underwater conversation if you're familiar with that i'm not no uh, the Moon Underwater is a podcast. It, it's been redone, and I don't think it's very great now. But up until a year or so ago, in the first batches of it, it's um, the Moon Underwater is George Orwell's sort of article about what he considers to be the perfect pub. Ah, okay. And he describes this pub, and he goes through this place that he goes, and how much he loves it, and what they order, and and how they have it set up, and everything else. And then at the and he tells you it's called the Moon Underwater. And then at the end of the essay, you realize that he has been describing his ideal pub, not one that actually actually exists. Right. So now there's a podcast that does that. They get people in. It's very English. And they get people in talking about their favorite pubs. And the old episodes I recommend to everybody because they don't get – in the old episodes, they don't get somebody who is very um, sonogenic. Would that be the word? They're not necessarily good radio people. Got you. They get on and they're like, the guy will be like the sub editor of like the financial times or the music writer for, you know, some publication I've never heard of in England. (laughs) They're guys that clearly spend a lot of time in pubs. Right. But they're not necessarily good on a microphone. Well, they, they end up being great because you're talking to like a real person. And these are guys who really spend time in pubs. It's not just some sort of, it's not like asking Tom Cruise what his favorite pub would be. 
Right. It's it's not. Yeah, it's not some posturing thing. It's it's, it's not it's, arch. Yes, there's yes. nothing arch about it. These are guys who really have opinions that are, and they tell these funny stories about when I was a kid, the first time I had a Guinness, and you end up hearing their bar stories. Okay. And so you're we're doing this right now, and I've never I've always listened to it. I've never thought about it. Here is what I would have to say. My favorite pub, preferably is old, preferably is small, um, must have good beer, um, and most certainly needs to be locally owned. And on top of that, it has to be the kind of place that keeps employees for a long time. Now, I'm just describing – I'm not describing a single thing about how it's to look or – how many chairs or a, a full bar you're, you're talking bar whatever. you're talking about a culture yes it's the it's the sort of things that create a place mm-hmm. go in for 20 years and you see people who know you whether or not they right. remember your name you're a neighborhood guy right and you walk in and they go oh, hey man are you still drinking ipas okay fine i got one for you right, right. it's that I sort think- of familiarity and the, the the connection to yeah people and by the way you know i'm a I'm a very big fan of dive bars that allow kids and dogs in. Now, me too. Not kids at nine o'clock at night or ten o'clock. No, but at two o'clock in the afternoon for sure. In the afternoon, sitting up front, your kids Mm -hmm. kicking a soccer ball around the patio. Yeah, and everybody's fine with that. And that that so it's very much the sort of Irish version of a of a drinking establishment is what I'm into. Um, Particularly where there's good crack, where people bust your balls and you bust their balls back. Yeah, um, I had a great experience like that. Boston's a great city for that if you want that in America. Um, I had a great experience like that where um, I went into a bar. I was on a baseball trip with three buddies, and we had gone to Fenway the day before. And we were just kind of – well, we had a good time. We had a good time. There, there are stories about I mean, that. I'm too. a Yankees fan, so by by uh, well, I'm no. I, I have to look. I apologize. I apologize that you decided to to take your uh, your neocon uh, fandom to athletics as opposed to I, politics. Honestly, I grew up in New Jersey. It was never an option. No, I I know, Bill. Yeah. I know, Bill. <laughs> you, you look. You want a ball busting? Here you go. There you go. Uh, exactly. uh, so we go into this bar, and my buddy Chad, who we'd been drinking for like two days. You know, mm-hmm. and he's like, I want to try something different. I'm tired of drinking beer. And so he's like, I'll take one of those. This was like when the whole like alcoholic soda thing, had just kind of started. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'll take one of those uh, hard root beers. And the rest of us are like, I ordered an old fashioned and my buddy ordered a Manhattan. And, you know, we're just kind of sitting there sipping our drinks. And the bartender comes over and he looks at Chad and he goes, you, uh, you enjoy that there? Mm-hmm. Chad goes, yeah. And he goes, good. Now that you're done with that, can I get you an ice water and a Pinot Grigio? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. You know, it's that kind of shit. And so and like so now every time Chad makes a suspect bar choice, somebody's going to say that to him. Right. Some glass of water and Pinot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to think like when I go to a, a dive bar, I like the idea of uh, they either only have like four tap options yeah. or we only have beer in cans. Yes. There's a place called the Red Derby in D.C. that famously only only gives you beer in cans that's it yeah um and they should be largely the less shitty version of mass produced beer yes so like your high lifes your labat blues your yingling your yingling. Yingling. i don't like yingling but yes that's either, a, but it's still a better than uh, normal yes it's better than it's better than budweiser yep. um you know so just you know and then have maybe 
three or four local things that you can throw in for six bucks or whatever. But the idea is I ought to be able to go there and get a beer and a shot for $10, $12. PBR, despite the cliche that it has become, is the perfect cheap shot in a beer beer. Sure. Sure. You throw me, like if I can sit down someplace and they go, Hey, here's a makers and a high life. And I can get out for 15 bucks with a tip. I'm that's exactly. a very a very happy man. Oh, I should add, by the way, one thing that my bar has to have, the bathrooms have to be beaten to death. Mm-hmm. And there has to be tons of writing on the walls with magic markers. And um, sticker and, stickers, I presume. No, no, no. Like people writing their personal notes on the walls. Okay. Okay. And I'll give you a great example of that is a place called um the Raven Grill in Washington, D.C., which is in Mount Pleasant. In the days before cell phones, people would call the old Bakelite phone because they would try to figure out where it was. Oh, yeah. And um, this used to happen all the time. Hannah was this old German woman that worked there back in the 80s. I mean, this is a place, it's been around, I think since 1953, the grill part burned down five years later and they still call it the Raven Grill. Okay, Even though it's strictly been a bar for the last 70 years. And and you would go into that bathroom at the Raven, and it's one of the most amazing things. I'm in there rather drunk in the early 90s on a cold winter night, and I'm using the toilet, and all of a sudden I noticed there's snow on the floor in the corner. And it was because the building was so decrepit, there was an actual hole in the wall near the corner of the ceiling, and it had started pouring down snow outside, and the snow was drifting into the bathroom. Yeah. And in that bathroom, you right when George Bush got elected, I'll never forget this. So this is 2000. I'm standing there urinating and I look up and someone had written, beware Leo Strauss on the wall at eye level. And and I won't get into who Leo Strauss is, but for those of you who are familiar with the neocons, as you mentioned earlier, quite an influential figure. We had not invaded anybody yet. You know, this was like right before everything went to hell, basically. Right. And someone had, you know, had been in there drunk and written that on the wall. Oh, my God. Right before it all happened. So there was like wisdom in a black, black magic marker on the wall that's, of the Ravens bathroom. That's being prophetic. My favorite one was I played uh, the first time the sticker on's ever played in Milwaukee. We played this little this tiny little I don't know if you've been to Milwaukee, but it's this culture of dive bars out of the great room of old houses that, mm. that are no longer lived in or. The family lives upstairs and the downstairs is a, is a tavern. Right. And they might only open on, say, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, for example. Yeah. yeah and yeah. you get like this regular. So this place is called the Circle A. It's been there forever. Just sadly recently closed. But I walked in and I went to use the can. And on this sort of turquoise painted wall in very heavy magic marker, someone has just written Judy Bloom is godless. Nice. And I just went, I'm in the right fucking place. Yeah. We're going to have a beautiful night. Um, Milwaukee's the drinkingest town in America. That is, I, I think that that's true. Uh, I can tell you that per capita, in terms of bars, Chicago and Milwaukee are so many light years ahead of any other major city I've ever been to. Yeah. Uh, in, including, including like Prague, where yeah, Pilsner was essentially invented down yeah. the road. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a bar in every corner, basically in Prague. But um, oh yeah. You know, it's funny because I think I think Wisconsin has the highest per capita alcohol consumption in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that sounds like, OK, cool, I get it. But then you think like higher than Louisiana. Yeah. Higher than like Nevada. And Michigan right? is like, Michigan is like that are professional 
yeah locate like places where tourists go and drink like hell and no one goes really to wisconsin to drink who's not no wisconsin and yet it has a higher per capita number that's amazing it's amazing um i think i want to say the last time i saw that Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin were all in the top five, and that tells you mm-hmm. something about life in the winter in the Midwest. Yeah, and, and I think Norwegians it's just and Germans. And I was I was just going to say, and a hardy Scandinavian population that's been here for a century and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I spent some time over the last few days listening to some Pogues records and having a lot of mixed feelings. How are you sort of feeling about this? I mean, I well, tell me first about your relationship with that band and with Shane McGowan specifically. So. What year did Nevermind the Bollocks come out? Um, by the Sex Pistols, obviously. 77? 77 or so. Okay. Yeah. So my to start out big, my relationship with music was that, you know, I was hearing normal normal 70s, 80s, or 70s rock and roll. And my brother Chris brought home Nevermind the Bollocks. And it's the most important moment in my musical life that the marching sound on the okay. first track. Yep. Right. And I can remember just being like shocked and blown away. And I was into punk rock from that moment on. Right. Like that just, I could have become a deadhead. I could have become someone who would listen to Van Halen, but no, that just said it. By the way, I was 10. Okay. Right. So like it just. And your brother is how old at this point, Bill? Oh, he's probably 17. Okay. So that's 17. Yeah. So my, my sister, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like my sister's 10 or eight years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And and I did a lot of this for her without knowing I was doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So, it, it, he just liked the album. Yeah. So anyway, go back to your story. Thanks. So that just set me on the trajectory of I'm going to like that kind of music. I had also grown up in a house where my mother rather incessantly played things like the Irish Rovers and yeah. these other twee as fuck, green alligators, long neck geese, kind of attenuated, watered down utterly shite versions of traditional Irish music. Mm-hmm. And I think she actually knew, I found out later, she actually knew really good hardcore traditional stuff. But around her kids, she played all this sappy crap because she figured, you know, it's my kids. I'm going to play this thing that, you know, like they can, they can handle. And right. I, I just I mean, like, tradi- uh, traditional Irish music, to be fair to your mom, it's pretty fucking dark. Oh, very much so. But we never heard <laughs> that. We heard the... And that was true of most people back then, Most, even most Irish Americans. You heard this sappy Disney version of Irish music all the time. Okay, so where do the Clancy brothers fall into that that arc? Because that was kind They're, of my it, introduction. Yeah, some of it is the sappy bullshit. Some of it's really good. Okay. In America, you heard the sappy bullshit. And yeah. Like I, like, I kind of – one of the records I really remember hearing growing up was – the first live at Carnegie Hall record was something that my granddad listened to a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was something where, like, I learned a lot of those songs. That's the one where they, the begin, <laughs> the beginning of the show, one of them starts to read Finnegan's Wake, and they they tell the crowd that's what the show's going to be. No, nice. They're just going to read all of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, yeah they yeah, read yeah. it. They read it long enough for the joke to go. And so there, so there is like a lot of showmanship and, and entertainment value to it. Like it's very kind oh, of yeah. corn, corn pone in that respect. But it is kind of built out of that real actual tradition sure and and a lot of irish americans back then didn't really know much about ireland you know I, i'm always very careful when i'm you know i was in belfast earlier this year and people say oh are you irish i would say no i'm irish american because i learned what happened as i got older i realized there's this whole irish american thing that has very little to fucking do with 
Ireland and Irish, Irish and Ireland identity. And, and, and that goes back and forth, by the way, in a weird way, there's like a complex there of, of Irish picking up things from America that we no longer do. Like country music is huge in Ireland. Interesting. Yeah. Which you would not know if you didn't, if you didn't go there and get out and get out into Galway and the West coast and whatever. Um, So what happens is I'm into punk rock. I hate this tweet. What I think of as this twee bullshit. Irish. Yeah. Um, you know, I lived in a house where my father was like, if you support the IRA, give a dollar to the IRA, I'm throwing you out. Like my father actually, re- he actually did have a lot of understanding of Irish in Ireland because he was closer to his roots there. My father is quite literally 100% Irish going back as far as we can tell. Wow. Um, you know, he, I'm 91% Irish genetically, believe it or not, according to the Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I have one, uh, one German, one Bavarian, I should say, great grandfather. And I have one English great grandfather who was from, uh, Birmingham. So he probably is a little bit Irish too. Um, and so, you know, we're quite an Irish family, but you know, my mom's side, they were really kind of disconnected from it and didn't really know it anymore. And I think the German influence was actually stronger with them. On my dad's side, he had stayed, he had gone to Ireland. He had been in the West Coast of Ireland in the sets, like 60s. So he really kind of knew that this, what, what Americans thought of as Ireland was not, was all bullshit, really. And so and he just, was, just to clarify, like the whole, like, sort of like charming Darby O'Gill, like very oh, pastoral. Like beef and cabbage is not Irish. I mean, like soda bread, you get that right. shit. Tourist hotel. That's not a, right. the, you know, the, <laughs> Corned beef, corned beef and cabbage. You know what that comes from? Irish no. people being poor in New York next to Jewish people and and uh, brisket from Jewish people and then slicing it thinly and calling it corned beef and cabbage. That's where that comes from. That's, a, that's an American thing, American inner city thing that Irish people picked up from Jewish people. That's fascinating. Yeah, there's no people in Ireland didn't and never have eaten that stuff. And I think it's gross, which I concur, frankly. Um, oh yeah, I don't like. I don't think you should boil your meat. I just don't think that's a great way. No, to make right. That's it. An, what I would say is that's an English thing, right? I mean, that, yeah, and yeah. And, um, and we all know the English so terrific with their food. They are. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Don't even don't even get me going on that. You want <laughs> enough memory in your computer to have me go off about English food? Um, but so I, I'm getting into this twee. I, I'm, I'm rejecting this twee Irish music. Yeah, and love love punk rock and new wave and all that stuff. And then a couple years later. Um, somebody puts on Rum Sodomy in the Lash, and that album just blew my mind. Because, in a way, even though you're rejecting the sort of culture you come from, in the sense that what you're hearing of it is obviously kind of bullshit and lame, and you don't like it, it's still your culture. And we were still, even though in my family we were very anti-IRA, we still wanted the we still wanted the Irish to win, the Catholics to win in the North. We want, you know, we had that. Yeah, you wanted an independent Ireland. Right, exactly. And we had that vestigial sort of national identity going on. Yeah. And so when the Pogues come along, all of a sudden, what I love in punk rock and what I would have loved to have loved in Irish music gets put together. And this is like Irish music that I can love and be proud of and be into. And it kind of, you know, I, I mean, it's still, I was looking at Spotify. It's still one of the most routine things i listen to whatever it is now 40 years later yeah i mean i think i think that first uh what red roses for me is what it's called when it comes out in america 
So I didn't. That, that. that record is eighty three or eighty four. Right. So I didn't maybe. Hear, I heard Red Roses for me second. Okay. I heard Rumsign and the Lash first. Uh, I'm being a little bit younger than you. Um, the first thing I heard was Fairy Tale of New York, mm-hmm. but it was contemporary to when it came out. So I heard it the year that it was the Christmas single. Which and I like went 90, no, 80, 87, 87. Yeah. And I went, what the hell is this? Like my mom and my grandparents had grown up listening to Celtic and Scottish music. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and this story is incredible. Like just as a, like as a 15 year old kid, I was like, well, the I wanted, the I want to know everything about these people. Yeah. It's a song, a guy singing about how he fucked up things up in his yeah. marriage and his life in a drunk tank in New York yes. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. That's, that's what's great about the Pogues is that it go it does get back to the, in both it's it punk makes it super modern but on the other hand the the modernity of it actually gets a closer back sound wise to what a like punk I'm sorry excuse me what traditional Irish music in a pub sounds like. Right that rough in a Kelly where it's often rough and some yeah. guys some guys kind of braying at you instead of having some fine Irish tenor. And it's a, it's a very like, there's an urgency to it. There's a, there's I think a, it's closer to what the music was. Yes. Yes. Um, with the addition of electronic music, that's it. But the, the, the darkness of it, of the Irish experience, you know, the Americans like to think of the Irish as these like twee snappy, funny people with good accents and and they're they're wry and they've got this sort of sort of noble savage kind of wisdom that they yes. can peel out but actually it's like really it's a dark history i mean my family was here because they were fucking starving your family came during they, the famine uh they came after the famine but they were like people who sort of survived the famine okay but then were doing terribly and so they had to leave a bunch of that's that's the ones from galway westport West coast of Ireland, but I also have relatives from Antrim, from Coleraine, from Armagh, who were in the Protestant ascendancy part of Ireland, and they were they were treated like dogs, right? So the, so there there's this, you know, my I think the first of my family comes in like 1850, most of them come 1870s, okay, and and you know so they're post the famine, but remember a, a quarter of the country died, right. Right. Like or, or died or left, I should say. So, you know, this is like a Cambodian and Bill, Bill, level crisis. Remind me. I mean, the famine essentially is they arched that over what roughly a decade. Is that no, about really, how really was the like really incredibly bad part of the famine was 1848, I want to say, to like 1850 or 51. OK. But people okay. reading grass. There were dead bodies on the roads everywhere. The British mm-hmm. were um, still forcing the the extra produce of the country to be sent overseas. Um, they were forcing it. There was food in Ireland. The British were not allowing it to be eaten to by be the distributed Irish. because they were like, no, this is a business and we're, we're, we believe in business and we believe in social Darwinism. And if the Irish can't get their shit together, then oh well. But to the degree that um, like the Cherokee Indians, I want to say, and the Turkish government, like what we would think of as who were then marginalized people were trying to send food and money to Ireland to help. I had heard about the, I had heard about the Turkish government. I had not heard about native Indians did it. I mean, like you had all these people going like, this is fucking terrible. Like help them, help them out. And the English were completely, um, I should say the British were completely, you know, just like whatever. 
you know, this is what happens to savages in that crappy, crappy island, basically. And, right. And so, you know, in the, in the Irish mindset, you know, that just the famine alone is this enormous thing, traumatic thing. And where, you know, you you talk to Irish American people, most of them don't know where they're from in Ireland or know who their family is in Ireland. Why not? Because when they left, the experience was so awful, they just wanted to go and never think about it again. Right. And there's this longing in Irish American culture. There's this longing to reconnect. I would argue that came a generation or two later. Oh, I ton of I mean it's always the it's always the sort of like the the fuzzy pillow of time that 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 breeds that wistful wistful recollection. Yeah, as my father said one time when I was a kid, they'd gone to Ireland and said, you know what, and this is when Ireland was pre-Celtic Tiger. Like you still saw in Dublin wagons going down the street pulled by horses with wooden casks of guinness on the back that's the 1960s it's 1970s still that way so this ireland was a very poor place until quite recently and i you know i said to my father so how how is ireland and he said you can't eat the scenery meaning it's beautiful but it's poor and it's awful right um and and you know we reconnected with our relatives in the 70s and now still know them and um you ask them, they're like, no, this place was the worst. Like all they dreamed about was going to America. Right. So, so how this all ties with the Pogues, the Pogues, like they, they get at that. You know, it's interesting. Shane McGowan, his family's from Tipperary, but yeah. he grew up in Kent, England for a, yeah, he, of, he, a lot he of lived. Life. I mean, virtually all of his schooling was done in England. That's right. But he, he would go to Kent or go to Tipperary, I should say, for very long stretches. Yes. So he's actually in a position where he didn't grow up immersed in it, really. He's kind of in this quasi outsider insider position to talk about it. Do you think he's most effective talking about the diaspora aspect of it? Um, so like I think of I songs think he's like very effective, but I wouldn't say that. I, I would say what he's most effective at is writing a song that is ostensibly a fun drinking song but is actually a song about the people you know all dying or leaving, which would be Sally McLennan. Well, so, okay. So Sally McLennan is is sort of one of the obvious things that if you get into this band, like that's this undeniable magnet. Like but most can't... people think of it as like a fun, woo, this is a fun drinking song. And and when you read the lyrics, you're like, oh, we, no. No, no you walked him to the station in the rain. Is taking kissed, someone to heaven. You kissed him as you put him on the train. Yeah. You sang him a song, A Time's Long Gone. You knew that you'd be seeing him again. In heaven, maybe. In yeah. heaven. You're which not actually going to see him again. That's right. And it's so it's like a what's great about that song, though, is that it, it, the things it leaves unsaid are the things that are the actual theme of the song. Oh, for sure. Which he does all the time. You know, the old main drag about the with the kid who is a street prostitute in London. Right. It talks about that. What it's really talking about is like how he, well, I guess he does talk about being destroyed, but it just, it's talking about like what it's like to be a gay homeless kid in London. Yeah. But it doesn't beat you over the head with that. He just describes his life. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at now. I'm ruined, you know? And it, it, he's just really good at, he, like, I think that that, that the, the sort of description of very dark things, but in a, in like this fun, energetic kind of way, he he plays. Uh, I mean, body of a body of an American is another American great also. example of that, right? So it's yeah. this it's this aspirational song, um, 
that takes place at a wake that's supposed to change the lives of these kids that see it. And it's about well, what the song is about is about Shane McGowan takes the hypocrisy of figures like this, right? Like he never he never lost a fight when the fight was right. So they sent him to the war. He's a boxer right. who threw fights unless he thought he shouldn't because there was some other, right. other value to be upheld, right? And and like that's what's great about that song. It's like the guy is like a palooka. Yeah. But he also has these things in him that are like really grand and 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 admirable. And Shane McGowan just layers that all on top of each other, which gives you like a very and, and again doesn't beat you over the head with it. Just kind of and, and are we all like that, right? Like we all have these kind of let's hope so. Let's let's all you know, we all have these ambitions and you know, one way or another, we all kind of compromise them through the realities of life. Right. And but you it's know, also, I don't know that I don't know that that ends up making us a palooka in your words, but it is kind of that idea of like, you know, we do have to kind of pick our battles. Yeah, I think it's more than that, though. I don't think he's I think he's saying. The good and the bad and everything else is just all part of it. Oh, absolutely. Right. There's no there's no like he doesn't we're moralize all, about it at all. In fact, he, we're all great. That he thinks that that part of it is kind of the awesome part. Mm. Right. That's what he's celebrating. He's celebrating that. He's not celebrating the guy who's a good boxer. He's not celebrating that he went to the war. He's celebrating this sort of mix of this man and and how you know the 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 texture, right? That's Shane McGowan. Shane McGowan writes about texture. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you know, I think that's I think that's what he's good at. I I you know, the songs that are like sort of straight up drinking songs that he has written are not that great unless they're actual traditional songs. Streams of whiskey being a good example. Streams of whiskey being a good example. Like they they uh, can cover their version of their version of song. their version of the Irish Rover is quite good. Yeah, exactly. Um, like they're um, I uh, as far as traditionals that they do, I have always found uh, their version of Leaving of Liverpool to be excellent, so great. And again, as you said, these are in essence all songs about people leaving or dying. Yeah, you know, um, two. Two of my favorites about that that aspect, the, the sort of the diaspora part that leave, are Thousands Are Sailing, which is a song that very specifically describes the plight of not just being in America, but going to America and wondering if you're going to be allowed to stay. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a line in that song that breaks my heart every time where he says, and I never even got so far that they could change my name. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. it just breaks my heart, you know, and it's like I'm willing to give up my Irishness for this dream. Oh, and most of them did. Yeah. Most of them did. That's that's exactly that's what I was kind of talking about at the beginning about the Irish American versus the Irish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, when and, I you know, when I go to Ireland when I was in Belfast, it was really striking to me. Belfast different, obviously, than a lot of Ireland, but just the sort of how most Irish American people would have just been like completely at sea on on how to navigate. You know, they'd be in a, I, the running joke when we were in Belfast is that I ordered a half and half, which you're, are you familiar with a half and half? Yeah. So will you please, will you please explain it? It just, it's a half and no, half. Knowing, no, knowing you, this makes it hilarious. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I have been in a bunch of Irish bars and in bars in Dublin, Galway, whatever, America. Um, a half and half is when you pour half a pint of lager and then you use a spoon. And you slowly pour the Guinness on top, and that retains the separation. 
so that you get a beer that is the bottom is lager and there's a very clear line and the top is Guinness. And as you start drinking it, you're getting all Guinness. And then it slowly transitions to a mix at the end. And it's like quite a nice thing. It's actually like a really like nice fun drink to have. In Belfast, that does not apparently exist at all. And we were in a in a bar in Belfast and I asked for a half and half and everyone looked at me like I was crazy. And so the guy said, well, you know, I don't know what, how to do that. I said, right, give me a Guinness, give me a, give me a harp. And I said, then give me a spoon that I can bend. And so then I poured myself a half and half. And every, you know, the people working, they're all younger. They're all like, oh, this is crazy. What's the deal with this? And I'm doing it. And then the, the owner of the bar walked in and goes, oh, you're having a half and half. And he knew because he had been to America. And it's just this little illustration of the fact that like what, what I thought of me, who was pretty au fait, thought, oh, this is just a common Irish thing, Irish whole island thing. But it turns out really not. It's like really probably just Galway, Dublin and the United States. OK, uh, I have heard it called a half and half. But when I have ordered it in the Midwest, that's not what it's called. Called a black and tan, right? It's called a black and tan. You 100 percent do not order it that way in Ireland. Uh, well, I would not. I know enough to not, <laughs> to not do that. Well, I because the, the the owner of the pub that came in, he he sat with us for a minute and he goes, he literally did what you just did. He kind of went, yeah. "What do you call that in the states?" And I said, "It's I said assholes call it a black and tan." Yeah, and he laughed and said, "Yeah, exactly, exactly." Yeah. Like, and by the way, like it's not an like in America it doesn't matter. But right. In Ireland, in Ireland, the context is such that you should probably not. You know, I had a nanny as a kid whose brother was hung by the black and tans. Jesus. So, <laughs> yeah. So. A, a, a fraught history, to say the least. Yeah. Um, which, again, to kind of dovetail it back to the Pugs, I sort of think it's amazing how much history is packed into those songs. Like, yeah. he's not just he's not just telling really, really personal stories in really kind of amazing language. Right. Uh, that often you can't understand because he's slurring his words so goddamn bad when he sings. Yeah. Um, but I'm often amazed at how not just the Irish experience, but sort of like this, this sort of larger spectrum of the Irish plate that you and I have been talking about. Like he does a really good job of kind of, he sort of inflects that perspective in everything they do. Even if it's not a song about imperialism, it's a song about imperialism. Imperialism yeah. is ever present in the work of Shane McGowan. Yes, definitely. And, or the experience of, of right yeah and again i think that's partly because he grew up in kent so he can he can see very clearly the way the irish remember you know remember the irish were treated often quite terribly in london in the 1970s sure the irish that lived there um and so he you know he had that accent and the totally effed up teeth and slurred his words all the time and, but that to me is actually what's really interesting about him is that I, I would suggest to everybody go on YouTube and find videos of Shane McGowan in the like 70s and 80s and 90s. He's a mess. He's a god awful mess. He can't talk. He's drunk and everything. He's on heroin and a lot of it. Yep. And yet he writes these lyrics that are clearly enormously astute. And it was really him. Like the Pogues were not like, oh, no, 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 we're doing this with him. He was writing the songs and he would work yeah. for months on a song, just one song. He would work for months. I don't think most people know that the Pogues were produced by Elvis Costello. That Rum Sodomy in the Lash is a is an Elvis Costello producer record. Yeah, and he kind of his girlfriend was a Cato Reardon, who's the singer, yeah. female singer. 
And Elvis Costello was like really heavily involved in like them becoming a thing. But Elvis Costello is like, there was no, I couldn't have, and Elvis Costello is famously an amazing songwriter. Elvis Costello was like, there's nothing I could ever have taught Shane McGowan. Like this guy is like an incredible genius. And me, Elvis Costello, who's famous for the literary sharpness of everything he writes, was like, yeah, this is not a guy. And and that's what's interesting about Shane McGowan. He's like this drooling, drunken fool half the time. Yeah. And then the other half the time, he's like this artist of very high capability, import, and insight. I mean, one of the first obituaries I saw was, I don't know if it's a tweet or an Instagram post or whatever, from Nick Cave. Yeah, and Nick and Nick Caves said, "From the day that I met Shane McGowan, I've been trying to write songs as good as Shane McGowan." Yeah, and and I mean, Bob Dylan said that about him. Tom Waits said that about him. Yeah. The best songwriters that we know are like this guy was the best songwriter. Yeah, which is funny because that's also what gets at like sort of the contradictions inherent in being Shane McGowan and the Pogues. Most people hear that music as this is fun Irish punk rock. But actually, there's another layer of it that's quite deep. I mean, A a Pair of Brown Eyes is such a great song, such a great song. And and it's it's really simple. And it's really I mean, you're the musician, not me. I hear that and I hear what I think is a pretty simple arrangement or or elegant arrangement, maybe a better way to put it. Oh, it's 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 so it's made are quite are quite important. Right. But just the lyrics are just so good and so like hit you between the eyes that's a song where i think that song is so good and so direct that i don't i think the only thing you could do to fuck it up is overproduce it Mm -hmm. i think that's about the only mistake you could make that's on wrong side i mean the lash if i'm remembering correctly yeah yeah Yeah, Uh, it would be interesting to find because elvis costello produced that song mm -hmm. it would be quite interesting to read his liner notes on doing that song because i'm sure there's a pretty good book um i don't know if you're familiar there's a there's a series of books called 33 and a third and not, yeah, and they get they get different writers to write about one record, yeah. And there's and there's one of these books about Rum Sodomy and the Lash that I read several years ago. That's quite good. Well, and Red Roses for me sounds more produced to me and more traditionally Irish. Absolutely, Lash, right? Rum Sodomy is kind of for me when they become the Pogues, yeah. like they kind of gel into being a unique. That's when the sound becomes completely theirs. And so, by the way, something we should point out, by the way, is that Elvis Costello who again is produ- who produced that album his real name is declan mcmanus mm-hmm. he come his father was named ross mcmanus and they were from a very irish family in britain you know like they had been they were like salt of the earth i think manchester is he from or birmingham uh, I do- i'll be honest with you i don't remember what i do remember is that his dad was like a big band musician that's right but his dad was his dad also was like in the irish tradition too Yes. So yeah. it's interesting. Like you, you, cause big band leaders like that. Um, oh, there's a great movie. Uh, oh God, I'll think for a second. But anyway, there, Adrian Dunbar's in this movie about an Irish tenor who's a band leader. And okay. It's like from the eighties, this really great movie. Hear my song it's called. Okay. And that actually the sort of band leader, the sort of magnetic band leader who does like, like they call show music in Ireland. Yeah. Right. That's Elvis Costello's father. Yep. So Elvis Costello is actually really connected to all of this too, which I think is why that second album becomes much more goes away from what was thought of as Irish music and gets more towards something that's a cleaner, rougher, less overdone version of things. And I would say 
and I don't want to make some grand statement, so I'll just make a personal statement. In terms of records that could be classified as punk rock, mm-hmm. there's rum sodomy, and then there's everything else for me. There's, I mean, it had it had everything. It had, yeah, it had energy. It had stories. It had these amazing songs. It had history. Um, my favorite Pogue song is Navigator. Yeah, like I I was, so I got that record right after I heard Fairy Tale. So mm-hmm. I, this is like. 87 88 i'm 16 years old 15 years old and i hear this song about uh these guys who built the railroad in asia and oh, see, i thought the, it was america i wasn't sure that they said where they were uh it could be australia america, there's it could be australia there's a line where i've always thought it was like burma or india hmm. and i wish i could remember what it what the line is and maybe i'm just projecting but there's a which by the way is totally legit right Oh, absolutely. You're interrogating the song for yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's well. And again, we I mean, I you know if you and I have talked about this, but I talk about this all the time. When you're an artist, once you release a thing, it stops being yours. Don't own it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's not yours. It's a it's a community project. It's um and so there's a but there's a line in that song where he says, uh, they're talking about he's talking about sort of the legacy of this railroad, and he says, the supply of an empire where the sun never set, which is now deep in darkness, but the railway is there yet. Yeah. And to me, with the the Irishman who died on the project buried under the correct under it. Yeah. And and to me, I always thought that was maybe the greatest fuck you Mm -hmm. to an oppressor in a song I ever heard. What it was saying is it was saying is we endure and your works die. Yeah. Yeah. You asked us to build a thing. It's still there. Yeah, it's still there. Well, and what the shit that we built it for has fallen apart. Well, and what Shane McGowan would have known too is that for the British Empire, large parts of it were run by the Scots and Irish, and large parts of their armies were Irish and Scottish. And Mm -hmm. there's this thing that, like, is sort of the British obviously would say the British actually would acknowledge it at the time, but you know, Wellington, who wins at Waterloo, yeah, was born and raised in Ireland, he was Irish. And and it's like this thing that like he of course identified himself with the aristocracy in England, but if you yeah. there, there's a reason that somebody like Wellington when he becomes prime minister pushes through the Catholic Reform Act, which allows Catholics in Great Britain to fully engage in civil society. Wellington was presented as this big tr- like traditionalist who wouldn't allow any of that. He 100 percent made it happen. He let it happen, and he helped it happen, even while publicly saying, "Oh, we shouldn't rush into anything." Because Wellington had grown up in Ireland and he was like, this is crazy that privately he's like, it's insane that Catholic people can't run for office and can't vote in England and can't. Right. And so it's a. And what what year does that happen, Bill? Oh, God, that's 1840s, I want to say. OK. Yeah. So there's there's a when when Shane McGowan's writing that song, he's writing about all kinds of he's it's just one little pin in the map oh, of yeah. how much of the British British Empire depended on. It's Celtic homeland people to make things work. Um, you know, and that I think like the Indian civil service was like dominated by Irish people by like 1900. It was like an, it was like basically an Irish civil service in India running really? the crown of the empire. Yeah. And that's, these are things that people just don't, you know, unless you're some huge history nerd like me, you're just never going to read that anywhere. It's not a, it's not a thing that the British talk about much looking back on their history. Uh, the Brits don't like to talk about much of their history at all, except for when they were super magnanimous and helped somebody else. 
which was sure. newer. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, the British. <laughs> but they like of, to pretend. I would put the British. Um, I don't know if you listened to me on Pete's show the other day, but I would be. I would say that I'm in the seat of somebody who, like, obviously, my family suffered under the British Empire. Yes, they were a lot better than a lot of other empires at the time. They still sucked terribly. Yes, you know that's kind of the. Uh, you would not have wanted to be under the Russians at any no, any no, no, no. period at all for Russia. You really no. do not want to be under them. No, that's a that's a that's a dark life. Yeah, that's a dark. I'm not sure you would have wanted to been a Belgian subject in 100 percent not either. Belgian. Um, yeah, um, Dutch were tough. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of, the French were the French were both terrible and good, um, and the British were terrible and good. It's fascinating because it's. So much of it is is not intended to be as awful as it is, and we can have this conversation another day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, but like, how much of that? How much of that absolute just god awful criminal behavior is just? Oh, we're doing something good. Like it's so it's so fucked up. Um, Christianity to the natives. Uh, so so I guess to kind of wrap up the the McGowan part, um. What do you sort of feel like the legacy is for young people who discover that work now? So Bruce Springsteen, I think, said it best. He said, I suspect that when people don't remember me and my music, they'll still remember Shane McGowan and the Pokes. Why do you think why do you think that is? I don't know that he's wrong, but why do you think that is? Because it ha- it retains an immediacy. It doesn't it doesn't date. It doesn't get dated. Oh, it's got a timelessness to it because of the way that it's melded together. That's right. And it's got this it, it doesn't. It doesn't sound old. If that album came out next week, you'd go, oh, shit, this is great. Yeah. Whereas, and by the way, like, it doesn't apply. You listen to Black 47, you listen to some of these other. Right. Molly and whatever. Dropkick Murphys and all these bands. They sound dated almost. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're mimicking something. And that doesn't mean that it's all bad, but it's not. Oh, some of it's quite good. But but it's, but it's not a, but it's not a it's not this collision of two worlds that had to happen in the mind of this one person like it did with the folks. Right. And, and, you know, they are, you know, people can write music that sounds pretty timeless. That's imitative. So oh, sure. There's something going on with the Pokes, which I couldn't, I wouldn't pretend to be able to parse out that they just sound new whenever you listen to. Them. And so I think they'll be around a long time. I think they'll go through phases where people will forget about them rediscover them, forget about them, rediscover them. Um, you know, in the way that people do that with Delta Blues or do that with, you know, jazz. Like they'll they'll just right. be like a, they'll kind of be locked into the soundtrack for a very long time. I and it these are not themes that he wrote about that are gonna go away. No, right. Right. Because, we're because we're not gonna get <laughs> facing your loss, loss of love and everything else. So by the way, we even you wanted to talk about something else today that is hits similar themes right of uh, dive into it i wasn't even sure if we would get to it but i would love to that's because this is this is sort of tangentially related to the next movie club but i, I really wanted to talk to you about this film okay so I, you had asked me if we could talk about chunking express well it was one of the films that you mentioned when when you reached out to me about maybe talking about a movie this was you'd mentioned yeah. two films and this was one of them and i can't remember what the other one was uh might be children of men probably or Blade uh, Runner, or yeah, and, and so Chunking Express, our, our bridge to Chunking Express is that it, it talks about exactly the same things or many of the same things that Shane McGowan talks about, the Pogues talk about, meaning meaning like sort of enemy, loss, love, all that stuff. 
Except the Chungking Express. It came out in 1994, by the way. Um, okay. It was Wong Kar Wai. He was doing another movie, like a wuxia movie, like a fighting movie. I don't yep. can't even remember what it is at the moment. And he had like a couple of months, like in the editing process of that movie, where he had like a couple months to himself. Is it? I don't mean to cut you off, Bill. Is it Fallen Angels that he made right before this? That may be. Either okay. I think that might have been right after. It's Ash something Ashes. I think it's called. Okay. Um, so he had this. He had this couple of months. And he just decided to do a movie on the fly that he hadn't even written a script fully for. And so, and it's this weird movie where the plot of the movie is like almost not there at all. There's one car, it's in, it's set in Hong Kong. It's set in, it's, I think it's called like Chungking Estates. It's a particular part of Hong Kong. Yep. And he filmed it in 1994 or three. So he caught this moment in Hong Kong in its, in its history where China wasn't back in control yet. It still was in this quasi state between Britain and China. And it this is the Hong Kong that Blade Runner, that like like Ridley Scott used Kowloon in Hong Kong to come up with the look of the city in Blade Runner. So there's this weird crossover, like you're watching this movie, and it's about these two cops and and the women that they're interested in, none of which is consummated. Um, you never learn the cops' names. One's two two three. One is six six three. It's her badge number. Yep. I don't think you know the names of any of the women. And um, you don't ever learn Faye Wong's name. She's the girl that works at the sandwich right. counter. You That's don't. Right. She. She. I believe in the credits. She's credited as Sandwich Girl. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. And I, I think that's right. I'll have to look it up. But. Well, and, and we should get like a little bit at like the two plots that just kind of. Yeah, yeah. I'll break those down and then we can kind of dive into how they how they run together and how this all kind of dovetails with what we were talking about earlier. Right. So 223 gets dumped by his girlfriend who's been with for like five years. Her name is May, actually. We do know her name. And the only reason okay. we know her name is because her birthday's on May 1st. And he spends a lot of the movie. She breaks up with him and he's buying tins of pineapples because she loves pineapples. And he's trying to find ones that all have an expiration date of May 1st because he has something in his head that that is good luck and she'll come back to him. And so he's buying cans of pineapples. That's mostly what he does in the movie. And he runs into also this mysterious woman and with a blonde wig who is like a drug drug runner dealer who's having this like very sort of frenetic blade runnery kind of thing. And they don't ever, they kind of interact, they split up, and, and that's it on that storyline. Crazily enough, weirdly enough. The other storyline is 663. And he is, like, it's Tony Lung, who's like this incredibly mm-hmm. good-looking, like, soulful actor. And he's a cop who keeps going to the sandwich shop. And in the in near the beginning of the movie, he's dating a stewardess. And Fei Wang, sandwich girl is watching this beautiful stewardess in this like really awesome uniform. And she's just like a Hong Kong sandwich girl. So she's kind of like, wow, check out this uniform. This looks really cool. That woman leaves an envelope with keys in it to the, with the owner of the sandwich shop and says, Hey, is the officer, basically the officer who comes here all the time, he's not here. And he goes, Oh no, no, his schedule changed. He didn't tell you, which means the sandwich shop owner, it's this little tell that he knows, like he just picks up immediately that like, there's something going wrong here. And she says, give him the envelope. Then, of course, there's this little montage that's amazing because you're suddenly sort of in the in the perspective of the sandwich girl where everyone, they steam open the envelope and everyone 
in the sandwich shop reads the letter. And it's just such a great, like, I love that because it gets at a couple of things, like how in a city, people who you just kind of bump into and interact with actually often know way more about you than you realize. And everyone's in close proximity and everyone's interested. And it's also a great example. I always felt like one of the things that that Wonkar Wai does is he does a great job of creating these kind of disparate groups of people who come together very quickly. And all of a sudden there's like a cohesive unit yeah, and there's a momentum how- to it in one direction. So in the, in, in the mood for love, all of the stuff that happens around the Mahjong table is all like this, like sort of like hub of activity that yeah, kind, of, yeah, yeah. kind of, kind of hovers around everything that happens outside of the individual rooms. That's right. And in it, to me in Chungking Express, it's that one song and her kind of verve and energy all the time. Oh, well, yeah. The way we should, she's we kind of moving. How crazy the plot with her is, too. Yeah. Because she keeps the keys, but she gives him the letter. Right. And by the way, when she tries to give him the letter, the first thing he does is he says, no, I want to finish my coffee. Because he knows the letter is going to be a breakup letter. Yeah. And so he doesn't want to deal with it yet. So he stands there coolly drinking his coffee, even though he's dying on the inside. And Sandwich Girl kind of backs up and she's kind of watching him. There's this like scene where she's just standing there staring at him, kind of out of the corner of her eye, as he is just slowing the moment down so he doesn't have so he can put off the the having to admit that the relationship's over. Even though she's totally figured it out. Oh, she knows. Oh, she's yeah. Watching, she's just watching his reaction. Yeah. Because she also likes him. And he does not yet know that he's going to fall for her. Right. And so what happens is that she takes the keys and she feels like she wants to make him feel better. So she starts sneaking into his apartment and cleaning it and rearranging furniture and le- like leaving food and stuff. He catches her. She freaks out, runs out of the apartment. Then he goes to the sandwich shop and is basically like, do you want to go out tomorrow night? And he's kind of got this look of like, ah, you're so busted. You obviously <laughs> like me. So we should go out. Now, that would be in an American movie, they would go on a date and there would be a montage of them doing whatever. Instead, what happens is that Sandwich Girl leaves the next morning, but she leaves him a napkin written like it looks like an airline. I think it's like an airline um, boarding pass. Yeah. It's like it's and it's dated for one year later. So he then you kind of end up with this weird thing where he she comes back. And he has quit being a cop. He's bought the sandwich shop and he's turning into a restaurant and she comes in looking like stunning in her stewardess thing. And she kind of, they kind of are looking at each other and she fills out another boarding pass on a napkin, draws it and hands it to him. And that's kind of the movie. That's it. And all of this, all of the nighttime scenes are just saturated in like blue, gold and red neon light. Oh, and, and, and the, the blues in that apartment when he's yeah. with the stewardess girlfriend at the beginning and he's like, there's a scene where there's like a blue curtain that flows like in the left hand part of the frame. Yeah. And he's got like a toy plane and he lands it on her naked back. Yes, exactly. It's and like the whole sensual without being sensual, uh, right? like, or this, sensual, the, but, but, but the whole thing is like, it's like layered in this like turquoise gauze. Yeah. Like it's Christopher just, Doyle's cinematography is just luscious. Yeah. Oh, so and by good. the way, the, the apartment where Fei Wong's character is uh, is cleaning up his apartment is actually Christopher Doyle's real apartment. Oh, no shit. Yeah, because this movie was just done on like the fly. Like, hey, we've got cameras, we've got guys, let's just do this. And 
what the movie does, it's so amazing, is it just creates a mood. That's all it really does. It just, it, and it kind of, it concentrates on those moments, particularly between the 663 and Sandwich Girl. It just catches those moments in your life where you're falling for somebody and those like uncomfortable moments. And it just pauses there. And the movie's really just about that. Just pausing there and watching how everyone is trying to figure themselves out. And it's like, it's funny because, you know, people are like, you know, it's a Hong Kong movie. It's not a Hong Kong movie. It, it's like, no. it's like a, if Godard was doing it in color, this is the movie he would do. Right. It's like such a yeah. like, beautiful and like, just like you're like, it makes love to this feel and, and, and street look and lighting of Hong Kong, of Chungking, Chungking's oh. I, and it's just a. And by the way, this movie when I ran into this movie was in like, a couple years after it came out. Okay. Um, I'd never been to Asia at that point, and it like I saw that movie and I was like, I have to go to Asia. I have to go to Asia. Not because like I wasn't. It wasn't this like weird, you know, yellow fevery kind of strange. Yeah. It was just like this is beautiful and like. I hadn't really, you know, intellectually, I thought, oh, there's, these, I'm sure there's big cities and it's really cool and whatever. But to see Hong Kong that way was just like so revelatory. And I'd already seen Blade Runner a million times and been told this is what right. Hong Kong is like. But this is the first time I saw like what it really is like. By the way, I've never actually been to Hong Kong since. I've never made it. Uh, my my two experiences with Hong Kong are both through the same filmmaker. It's this yeah. and in the mood for love. Which in the mood for love is another just uh well that's so that's that's how it's tangential. So I don't know if you saw or not, but the next little like interactive movie club thing that we're gonna do in a couple of weeks, we're gonna do that and we're gonna do David Lean's Brief Encounter, and we're gonna talk about two films that's good combo about love that is requited, maybe, but not consummated, which yeah, is not on a thread with this guy. He's great at the restraint. Yeah. He holds back. He's 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 doing a poem. He's not writing a novel. And well, so, you, so funny that you say that earlier when you were talking about how you said Chung King expressed like, and that's kind of it. Like it really is a tone poem. Yeah, I mean, it truly is a a thing where like he's he's building a world, and it's more about what that world feels like as these people move through it than it is what happens to them when they're doing it. Like, I mean, there's a whole section in the movie where. Um, they play California Dreaming, and she's sort of dancing around in the sandwich shop. That's oh, they played a million times, and it's it's not sexy. It's not. It's just like her dancing in this kind of goofy way, and it's such like it's the highlight of the movie, and it doesn't really have any. What's well, it's, it's so innately charming? I mean, she's just so she's yeah. adorable and effervescent, and like she's got all of this energy. She's just youth personified. Well, and so. In that movie, she sings a cranberry song. Um, I'm blanking on which one is it. No need to argue. Which one is it? Uh, no. It's because um, they use it for the soundtrack too. Oh yeah, I'm looking this up right now. We should never. Uh, is but... it dreams? Yes. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. she sings this song. Fei Wong, Sandwich Girl, actually sang yeah. that song for the soundtrack. This again gets it, like how ad hoc this all was. She, she was the actress. She had a good voice. Fuck it. Let her sing it. <laughs> it created a whole movement in Chinese culture called dream pop. Where that became a whole genre of music that comes directly from that one song and that one. From that one cover from a movie. From that one cover from a movie that was intended to be just a throw off thing. He was basically doing a, a, a film 
and and artistic palate cleanser for himself because everything else he was doing was so heavy and so right and whatever so one car was like i'm gonna do this like gonna be my palate cleanser and it's turned out to be like culturally a hugely important movie in chinese culture it's and and still 30 years later revered the world over like not just within chinese culture like criterion collections yeah still seen as one of the certainly one of the great films in the last 30 years uh, it's if I had, you know, you can never pick one film. It's in my top 10. No question. That's it's awesome. I don't it's actually my top five. That's amazing. You do you prefer this film over in the mood for love? Um, yes, there, only only in the sense that in the mood for love, I find it almost painful to watch. It's really hard. I just it's watched awesome. I watched yeah. the first half of it again as I'm prepping for the discussion. And I'm like, oh, this is whew. It's a gut well, punch. Because, like, you know, the thing is that it, the movie is about people in denial, yeah. denying themselves something, and it denies you the satisfaction of seeing any resolution. Um, there's also a remarkable uh, ships in the night almost meeting yeah. angle angle to so much of his work. Yes. This This idea of fate and timing that is so crucial. I mean, that certainly is that, I mean, that's at the key of in the mood for love, but it's also a big part of chunking express. I mean, for a long time, like you're saying, she's kind of popping in and out of his apartment, completely unknown to him and having this whole other world. And then once that balloon gets popped, everything about her and the way she sees him changes. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin it. She's been falling in love with him. Right. He has been getting happier because she's making these little changes and he's not quite sure why he's getting happier. Right. But he's in, I mean, someone's coming to his apartment and moving shit around and he doesn't figure that out. Right. But yeah. I mean, it's that idea of like, like people kind of, kind of dancing around each other. I mean, in the mood for love, there's the whole thing with the noodle stand where well, they pass, way, each, where they pass each other on line. the stairs all the time. Like that, that happens four line. or five times. Sandwich girl says when he comes to say, Hey, why don't we go on a date tomorrow night? Yeah. He gives her a CD, which I think has the cranberry song on. And okay. he, he kind of pins her and he's kind of like, Okay, let's let tomorrow night we'll go on the stage. And she takes the CD, looks at it, and you know what she says? No. I'm doomed. No shit. Yes. Like, ah, I'm doomed. And she runs into the back of the restaurant. And then the next morning she goes and becomes a stewardess and leaves for America. And by the way, I she never to, I never caught that line. And she well, and she goes to California. That's California dreaming. That's actually right. she goes to work as a stewardess. So there's all these like like she and by the way why is she doomed? Because she's afraid to fall in love. That's right. So it's this. Beautiful- she knows that she knows if she goes on that date that she's gonna stay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which so that 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 is that is why this is all those reasons are why this is my absolute like really just one of my favorite movies. I'm um, so gl- I'm I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about it. I can't wait to watch it again. It hasn't been that long. Yeah. Um. Have you seen? Have you seen a lot of his other work? I've seen everything. You've not, seen everything. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen like the the fight movies and all that stuff. I'm not. I haven't fan. seen any of the like sort of like I sort of think Wu of them Sha. as like his his John Woo films. Yeah, that's the that's the Wu Sha stuff, and I'm, um, you know, I'm sure they're great, but it's just not. I'm not that into that. I'm, me I'm, neither. Um, uh, what I haven't seen yet that I very much want to is uh, 2046 because I'm uh, curious. 2040, yeah, 2046 is all about time. Does it tie? Does it tie anything together for you, or is it all still so vague that you have to tie it together yourself? Which is kind of what I want. Yeah, 
It's a weird okay. movie. It's uh, okay. a very weird movie. It's it's much more of a dreamy. Um, it's very dreamy and very weird. It's science. It's a science fiction movie. Uh, yeah. in theory, it's a science fiction movie. Um, and probably strangely enough, being influenced by Blade Runner a little bit. Oh, that does bring it back around. Yeah, That's right. Interesting. Like, so, yeah. yeah. So, so put that in mind. My, my yeah, the, I always I was watching that, going like, oh, interesting. That feels like he was taking notes from Ridley Scott, who was taking notes from Hong Kong, who was, you know what I mean? Like, there's the there's all of that going on there. It's pretty interesting. By the way, so, it's a science fiction movie on a train, which is also just such a weird choice and really inspired. The whole film takes place on a train. Big parts of it, yeah. I think God damn, yeah. That that guy just makes the most fascinating universes. Yeah, yeah, and he, he just, just does it without. What's great about it is it's without reference to everything that we think of as as uh, yeah, it's a train. Yeah, that that he's on, and it, that's a choice that has no sort of precedent in anything else. There were not trained science fiction movies before. Um, like it's just no, a, but but. Think about all the sort of metaphorical acreage there is there, yeah. you know, as we as we are all on this thing and we're barreling through life. You, you can't know, turn and, on a train. No. You're on a track on a train. Yeah. Yeah. And right. there's yeah. So it's so again, we're getting back to time and fate and destiny and this idea of like lack of control and, yeah. kind of, you know, I, I need to watch it. Bill, thanks so much for for doing this, man. This was really, really. F- I love that we can find a way to talk about Wong Kar Wai and yeah. the Hogs in the same conversation and make it make sense. There you go. Hopefully, hopefully. Excellent. Thanks, buddy. All right. Bye bye. There he goes, my friend and yours, Bill Boyle. Thanks so much to Bill for being on the show, for coming on and and eulogizing the great Shane McGowan. I hope you'll go and listen to some Pogues this week. If you haven't already, I would say if you're not a fan, start with Rum, Sodomy, and The Lash. Make sure you can find a way to read the lyrics while you're listening, if at all possible. Uh, Make sure you're paying attention to the uh, Steven Spielberg uh, bracket challenge. We are down pretty much to the final contest. By the time this thing airs, we'll be just a few hours away from knowing who our contestants are. Voting will begin Saturday for the full week. And please, my friends, you're already in the app. Why don't you go ahead and like, rate, and review this pod right now. You're at the end of the episode. This thing's going to end in like 30 seconds. You can jump right on there and do it. In the meantime, I'll see you over at whatamimaking.substack.com. That's the old blog where everything happens. Until then... Be well, my friends. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. That there was a production of Medici. And his ADHD as a damn fine theme music by David J. Baldwin.